did a Google search this week, and I did not intend to get the results that I got, but the search had to do with this sermon. And I will just tell you up front, this sermon is about motivations. And I typed in the search, what motivates you? And I was a little surprised by the results because the top results I got for about three pages all had to do with the same thing, a job interview question, that this was a primary job interview question, what motivates you? And you go into the various articles and it would talk about why this question was asked, that it revealed what was important to you. It revealed what your dreams or aspirations might be. It revealed whether you might fit or align with the values of the company you were interviewing for. It might reveal a work ethic or a lack of one. That the question had so many possibilities of saying something about who you are. But here's what was interesting. All of the articles then followed with this. Here's how you answer the question. Which I thought was very interesting. On the, on the positive side of that, it was how do you phrase what your motivations are in such a way that it answers the question appropriately? But on the other side, there were all these samples. Like, here's a good way of answering. Here's a good paragraph. Here's some sentences. And I thought, how interesting. The whole point of the question is what motivates you, but the way that many of the sites are taking it is, I don't care about you, I just want you to get the job. Here's what you say to get the job. This morning, I want to ask you that question. What motivates you? But there's no website to give you the right answer because this isn't about getting the right answer. This is about asking yourself, what motivates you? And what we're going to see in a moment is a particular motivation for Pilate. And it's an underlying motivation that is driving him. And I think it is a motivation that many of us share. Open your Bible, if you would, to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15, we're continuing in verse 6. The motivation that we're going to talk about this morning, it is really, really significant for those of us who are seeking to live kingdom first. Because this particular motivation undergirds whether or not we are really living our king's will. Verse 6. Now at the feast, he used to release for them one prisoner for whom they asked. All right, this is important. Remember last week. Pilate was amazed at Jesus, that this man standing before him did something that just made him go, wow, and it revealed something about Jesus to Pilate. This guy was not guilty of the things they were saying he was guilty of. He definitely didn't deserve what they thought he deserved. And so Pilate finds himself in a situation where he has a man that the religious leaders want dead, but he looks at the man and says, 
he really hasn't done the things that you think he's done. And what he is guilty of, I'm not going to kill him for that. But how does he get out of it? He could just say, nah, get rid of you guys. But here's something you need to know about Pilate. Pilate did not like unnecessary unrest. There's no reason to stir up crowds and cause riots for no reason. So how does he get out of this? And the whole first section of this, Pilate is actually making good decisions. He's trying to avoid riots. He's trying to avoid condemning a man who's really not guilty of the things they're talking about. He's trying to avoid being manipulated by the priests. I mean, there's some good things happening here. And his first one is this, I got a way out. There is a tradition of releasing somebody on the Sabbath. Now, the religious leaders might want this guy crucified. However, I know he's been popular with the masses. So let's throw this out there. And among the rebels in prison, verse 7, who had committed murder in the insurrection, there was a man called Barabbas. It says the insurrection because this is likely an event that took place that the people reading this would know about. It doesn't give us the information, but some insurrection happened, and people were captured, murder was committed, and these guys are thrown into jail. And the crowd came up and began to ask Pilate to do as he usually did for them, and he answered them saying, do you want me to release for you the king of the Jews? And I think Pilate expected an affirmative. Like this would be the way we'd get out of it. If the people say, let's release him, then the priests and the religious leaders can only do so much. It wasn't really on Pilate. That was the will of the people. This is the tradition. He's following through with it. Unfortunately, it doesn't go the way he wants. For he perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up, but the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have him release for them Barabbas instead. Dang. That plan fails. And Pilate again said to them, but now he's going to appeal to their conscience. So the tradition didn't really work, but let me try something else. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with the man you call the king of the Jews? Maybe I can just kind of punish him and let him go. And they cried out again, crucify him. And so Pilate said, why? What evil has he done? Again, still appealing to conscience. Are you sure we want to go this far? Do we really have to crucify this guy? Is that really what you want? But they shouted all the more, crucify him. Here's the first thing that I want you to see. I think we can argue that Pilate makes a good decision. He's actually trying to get Jesus released. And that is the right thing, correct? He is innocent of these charges. They're making stuff, well, they're taking what he did out of context, raising the issues because they're so afraid of what he might do. But still, it's not right. And you see Pilate making a good decision to try to avoid riots, try to get a man off that isn't really as evil as they think he is. All this is the right thing. It's a good decision. Here's the problem with our decisions. They are often more complex than we may give them credit for. There are often underlying motivations 
that go beyond what we might consciously think of. Now, I want to give you an example. Everybody knows the game rock, paper, scissors, right? Anybody not know that game? Anybody not played that with their kids at one time? You know, it's rock, paper, scissors. Now, the thing is, you think about that game, you got three options. You should have a 33% chance of winning because it's all random, right? What if I told you it's not? Even though it looks that way, when studies have been done on rock, paper, scissors, it would be random if there were no psychological component to it. The problem is, when we play the game, we are responding to what is happening. It's not just that we're blindfolded and we're doing this and not thinking about it and randomly selecting something. Think about when you play the game. After the first round, whether you win or lose, you don't just randomly think of something, do you? You start going, okay, wonder what they're gonna do. Here's what studies have shown. More often than not, if a person wins, say with a rock, they're gonna do the rock a second time. More often than they'll do something else. And knowing that, more often than not, if the loser understands that, their second one should be the thing that defeats the one that just defeated them. And without knowing that, there was a higher percentage of actually getting win streaks. Because it's not as simple as just three things, because we aren't that simple. We have other motivations. Look what happens with Pilate. Verse 15. So Pilate, wishing to satisfy the crowd, everything switches. All the way through, it's, all right, let's use this tradition. That'll get him off. We'll get him off that way. Come on, he's not that evil. Why do we want to crucify him? But now we get to the underlying root of why he actually makes the decision he makes. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. The decision that Pilate makes, ultimately, it's not a moral decision. It is not about getting this man off. It is about one thing, Pilate. His underlying decision is selfishness. This is the easier call. If he goes along with the crowds, sure, one innocent guy may die, but at least there won't be riots. At least I don't have to mess with the crowds or religious leaders. And in a way, I can kind of just wash my hands of it as he does in one gospel. I'll just put it on you. But is he really able to actually put it on them? Who makes this decision? Pilate. Selfishness undergirds his ultimate decision. So is it good? In a way, all the way walking through. In fact, you could even say in a way, this is good. Because he avoids possible bloodshed. He avoids greater things. But if you happen to see my Facebook post, I said, when is good not good enough? Because here's the thing. He might have made a good decision. He did not make a godly decision. And those two things are different. One 
is about self-preservation. The other starts with self-denial. One of them is in itself selfish. The other is a surrender to God. Pilate makes a good decision, but not a godly one. And this just came home to me. (laughs) So we had a brake light out in our van, and it got mentioned to me by my wife, and I'm like, okay, we'll get that taken care of, we'll get the van, and we'll get the brake light changed. Well, then, this past, like, two days ago or so, the top brake light in the middle, it also went out. So now it's like one brake light on the left is the only thing working. And at that point, Aaron's like, we need to get this fixed. I'm like, all right, I will get it in. I will get it in. I'll have them change the lights. And Aaron says, why don't you just change it? And in my head, I thought, because I'm a total car moron, I have no idea how to do this. I will utterly screw up changing a brake light. What I said was, okay. Now, thank God for YouTube. Went on, watched a video, went, oh, wait, maybe I can do this. You know, went to AutoZone. Now, once again, I'm at AutoZone. I'm like in the right lane looking for the light. I'm like, I cannot find the light. I've got the whole book. I look up the numbers. I'm like, it's not here. Like, I'm looking everywhere. So I went up to the thing, and I said, excuse me, ma'am, can you help me? I can't find a brake light. She's like, for what? She types in the number. She walks over the same aisle. She goes, here you go. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) I get home. Takes me like 15 minutes. Change both lights. 15 bucks. Here. (laughs) That was a weird. (laughs) Here was the thing based on this sermon that I had to think about. The reason I didn't want to change the brake light, I didn't want to look like a fool. And you know what I was willing to do? I was willing to take a whole lot more time to drive it over, let it sit there while Honda changes it, drive it back. I don't know how much money they were going to charge me to change the stupid brake light, (laughs) but it would have been more than $15. I was willing to spend our family's money Spend our family's time because ultimately I just didn't want to look like a fool. Now, there were a couple of good reasons. I actually was thinking I might screw it up. I mean, I really did think I could screw this up because I don't know if you've ever looked at those little things, but there's no obvious way of taking them off. Like, if you just look at it, you're like, I don't know how to get it off, though. There's no, like, screws. There's no, you got to open the back and see where the bolts are. I really did think I might not be able to do it. I might screw it up. But underlying all of that... I really just thought I'd look foolish. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to look at some of the decisions you're making. And I want you to recognize that you can have some good motivations, but underlying it is its selfishness. Is the primary reason you're doing what you're doing. Is the primary reason that you are treating somebody like you're treating them making a decision about a particular thing the way that you are is the underlying motivation actually selfishness. It makes it easier on you if you do it this way. It makes it so you don't have to confront something or deal with something. 
It makes it so you don't have to trust God really. If I just do this, it'll kind of get me off. What is the underlying motivation? Because here's the thing. Self-preservation is so much easier than self-denial. But you also can't really follow the king's will when it's all about self-preservation. Because at the very heart of what Jesus called us to was deny yourself and take up your cross. Because in order to follow his will, by necessity, we have to deny our own. And when our own is steeped in preserving ourselves, being safe, being selfish, we can't possibly follow his. But the reason I want you to understand the complexity is because I really don't think it's as simple as just, I'm an awful person, or I'm a really good person. I think we need to recognize that sometimes there's actually good reasons for making a decision, and yet it could still be selfish at its core. The thing about selfishness is this. When we make selfish decisions, we can hurt others. You see that in this passage, starkly in this passage. You see that in my little decision. You know, we are not a super wealthy family, and wasting money on taking my car to go get a brake light fixed at Honda, that's selfish. It's costing my family something. But it also hurts us. The more selfish decisions we make, the harder we become. The more selfish decisions we make, the easier it is to make selfish decisions. What it reminded me of is the water in Frisco. You all know we have hard water. If you don't, just go look at your faucet. We have hard water in Frisco. And we recently, well, a year ago, we had our bathroom redone with new faucets and everything. And like the mineral deposits in the water, it's just building up on our faucets. I mean, this white gunk, it's on our shower head, it's on our faucets. And it didn't happen like that. We didn't turn the water on and then the next day, wow, look at that, where'd all that come from? It was little by little, little more, little more until we had this gunk. And you know what that gunk can do? It doesn't just like not look pretty. It can ruin pipes. It can ruin appliances. It's part of the reason that your uh, dishes come out of the dishwasher and they have streaks on them. It's the hard water. I mean, it has all kinds of effects, but it's something that happens over time. It's the same way selfishness works. The more we do it, the more it hurts us. So, How do we change it? I'm gonna give you just one thing to think about. We at least need to know it's there. We at least need to start looking at why we're doing what we're doing and being honest and being able to say, I made that decision really just for me because that knowledge allows us to begin to take steps to go, I actually want to live in self-denial, not self-preservation. I want to make a different decision next time, or even this time. All right, 
I have to get this in, so I'm ending my sermon with it. I had a really good friend of mine give me a really, really good gift this past week. I got to go watch Dirk Nowitzki's final home game. And it was incredible. I mean, it was like being at a finals game, the energy in that room. It is the only time I've ever gone to a Mavericks game where we were there in the seats 15 minutes before the game started on a Tuesday night, and every seat, except the two right next to us, every seat was full. And everybody got there. And every single time Dirk touched the ball or got near the ball, people were on their feet screaming. I mean, it was just... And then when he would go to the bench for a rest, he'd get about two minutes, and a chant would start up. Bring Dirk back! Bring Dirk back! And Carlisle, most of the time, within a few minutes, okay, come on, Dirk, get back in the game. I mean, it just, it was an incredible game. But two things about that game resonated with this sermon. Number one, he did something that I want to be able to do. Pilate couldn't do it. I don't know if I could do it. When Pilate stood before the crowds, he gave in to their demands because that was the easiest route. Dirk literally stood in the middle of 20,000 people. The lights were off, and the only spotlight was him. <laughs> and they're all chanting, one more year, one more year. And in the middle of that, Dirk announces his retirement. And I just thought to myself, it's not this moment. There's a testament to this man's life where he did not just satisfy the crowds. Many of the things that he did, the decisions that he made, they were not about satisfying the crowds. They were not the easy way out. But there were underlying motivations that were the right motivations. And you saw it partway through the first quarter, right? Dirk has broken basically every record in the Mavericks organization. He is so popular, he has changed the game of basketball. And to come and celebrate him were the likes of Scottie Pippen, Charles Barkley, Larry Bird. They all showed up at the arena to give little speeches for Dirk. And yet only once, the entire night, did he just break down weeping. I mean, to the point that he described his first shot after weeping, he still had tears in his eyes and he couldn't even see the rim when he made the shot. He didn't make the shot, he missed the rim completely, but he couldn't see it. But I mean, the camera goes over and on the big screen you see Dirk in the chair bent over on his knees, he's sobbing. This is what he was sobbing about. They had just shown a video. For two decades, Dirk has been going to Children's Hospital every Christmas, and he spends hours. He brings this giant wagon of presents, and when I say presents, it's iPads and Xboxes, and, and he goes individually, room by room, to spend time with kids. He comes to the door, and he always says, tell me the person who's in this room, I wanna know their name, I wanna know what they're like, to go in and talk with these kids. 
And he's been doing it for decades. And the one thing he said is, nobody gets to do a spotlight on this. There were pictures being taken, but those pictures were for the fan. They were for the kid in the room. It wasn't until a couple of years ago they finally got him to agree to let one story be done. And he said on this condition, the story needs to be about the kids, the families, the doctors, and the nurses. Because they're the ones that matter in this. And there's this long story that was done, and it just tells story after story about these kids. And it highlights him and his involvement, but it's, it's kid after kid after kid after kid. And some of these stories are just like, I don't know how you go into the room. There's a story about a kid who was in a car accident. He wakes up from anesthesia, and he learns after waking up they had to amputate a leg. And it's not long after that that Dirk is invited to go into that room. What do you say to that kid? And Dirk asks, he says, do you, do, does he want me to go in? And they said, yes. And he goes in. And this kid vomits on Dirk multiple times. And the reporter says, not once did he even recoil from it. The one moment that Dirk broke down weeping was the thing that meant more to him than even basketball. These kids, these families, humanity. That, I mean, I, I feel in a way bad for doing this, but I'm going to hold up Dirk Nowitzki for a moment, a basketball player. But I want to be more like Dirk. Never going to be seven feet tall. I'm never going to be able to make a jump shot. But man, to have a heart that is not worried about the crowds, that's not in this for selfish reasons, but actually sees the person that you are trying to love. That's what I want to be. But to get to that point, I got to see some of the selfishness in me. I got to see some of the ways that the crowds sway me so that I can make those changes in my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you for one whose motives were completely and utterly pure, who came before you in the garden, poured out his heart, and yet still said, thy will be done, not mine. Lord, thank you for people who model what it looks like to be selfless. I pray for every person in this room that you would give us the insight to see the selfishness in our lives, to recognize it for what it is, and to trust your love enough to make changes in our lives, to practice self-denial instead of self-preservation. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.